Welcome to Fraternal Review, the podcast. This is Brother Ian E. Laurelin, and today I'm sitting down with our editor-in-chief, Angel Millar, to discuss the December 2022 Fraternal Review issue and its corresponding topic, the Hermetic Mason. The focus of this issue, which actually was the first issue that I've guest edited to date, explores the relationship between Hermeticism and Freemasonry. And Brother Angel, who has led the editorial work for the Fraternal Review and the publishing direction for the Southern California Research Lodge this year, is nice enough to sit down and engage in a conversation with me regarding this topic. Welcome to the show, Brother Angel. Thank you, and welcome. Since there's some real reversal going on today, and I'm going to be That's interviewing right. you instead of you interviewing me or anyone else. Uh, yeah. yeah, you are the guest editor of the December 2022 issue of Fraternal Review, and the subject is Hermeticism. And obviously, there's, um, you know, I think there's a lot of brothers and maybe a lot of non-Masons who make the connection between Hermeticism and Freemasonry. But let's begin with the basic. What is hermeticism? <laughs> the basics. In terms of the broadest, most difficult question you can answer, sure. Yeah, broadly speaking, it really captures a number of philosophical ideas. I think when most people refer, that date back all the way to ancient Egypt and the early mystery schools that we study. But I think... More specifically speaking, when people refer to Hermeticism, they're referring to a body of text that was saved right around the Renaissance period, coming from the Corpus Hermetica. And within that text is a number of teachings, if you will, between a primary character within that set of scripture or set of texts, and the, uh, the conversations with one referred to as mind or as deity, and it really outlines the framework to this philosophy that we refer to as Hermeticism. So I think as simply stated as possible, it's a body of philosophical ideas that really took shape and form during the time of Renaissance period when the early scriptures were cobbled together and salvaged into this sort of one prime piece of text and literature. What would you add to that? Yeah, I think that sounds about right as a basic overview, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think Freemasons have had such an interest in Hermeticism? Yeah. Or why do you have an interest in Hermeticism? <laughs> yeah. I speculate on others when I could just yeah. speak from, the, from myself, from the soul. But I think the answer is actually one and the same. We've all heard, tell me if this, I'm going to spot check this theory here, but have you heard that once a Mason, always a Mason? I don't know that I have, actually, but... <laughs> An honest answer. How about <laughs> the idea of reincarnation? Have you at least have heard and absorbed that, that idea that what we are experiencing and living out in, in this body and in this lifetime may have been repeated countless times uh, prior right. to this moment? Sh sure. Or they may, yeah, so yeah, there are different ideas of reincarnation. One of them certainly is the idea that we are paying off karmic debts in this lifetime that we have accrued in a previous lifetime for sure. And I think 
Uh, certainly, I don't know about every school that believes in reincarnation, but uh, certainly Hinduism, which believes in it, also thinks that we need to check out of the cycle mm -hmm. of reincarnation and uh, mm -hmm. go back to Brahman. But uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I think on a certain level, if one subscribes to reincarnation, it sounds like you at least have homage to it. For me personally, I do believe strongly in reincarnation. I carry with that the sense that in countless previous lives, we have a handful of experiences that we're carrying forward to this moment, to this day. And one of those experiences and memories and feelings is, for me, one has been to knock on the door of a lodge and explore this thing called Freemasonry and to pursue mm -hmm. my own ascension and my own ability to create a life and to evolve my spirit in this lifetime. But also prior to Freemasonry, I had this, this connection or this feeling of early Egyptian memory and early Egyptian connection. And I, I'm not quite sure. I can't really put a finger on it. It wasn't like I was exposed to it by many schools or uh, spiritual institutes along the way, but I've always carried with me this feeling that I was born searching for Freemasonry and that I have some connection and some experience and some memories of previous lives in Egypt. And I think from that, and it may sound silly, but from those early sensations or those early memories, I just took an interest in the ancient mystery schools and what has been taught in Egypt and also how that connects to Freemasonry, which is obviously something that I'm continuing to study and pursue now. Sure. Leaving reincarnation aside, why might <laughs> a Freemason be interested in Hermeticism? One of the arguments that I tried to make, I think the primary thesis that I wanted to make in this issue is that Hermeticism is the primordial seed of not only Freemasonry, but of all religion and philosophies around the globe. This is a lofty claim. I'm aware of this, and I struggled, and you challenged me on this too, right? Where does it say in the text? <laughs> And mm -hmm. what are the original sources that we can point to that substantiate this claim? So why would a Freemason be interested in Hermeticism or the early Hermetic texts that have been salvaged? It's because if you speculate and point back to a few early manuscripts, the few that do exist, you'll find that there's not only a thread from Hermeticism through Freemasonry today, but there is also this overarching theme, overarching themes, multiple themes within Hermeticism that relate very closely to our progressive science. So I'd mm -hmm. say you have to, as a Freemason, you have to acknowledge the fact that there is certainly a connection, a deep connection between our craft and Hermeticism. And if you acknowledge that there is some level of connection, then I think that should substantiate some, some level of interest. But it is the connection historical or, or philosophical? I think that's the challenge that you put to <laughs> me as the uh, editor-in-chief. Well, we go back to, and you can correct my pronunciation on this, but we go back to the Cook manuscript. Yeah. Is that how we say mm -hmm. it? Cook. Sure. Well, I say Cook. Cook. <laughs> I could be wrong. Okay. That's how I say it too. So the Cook manuscript, and maybe you can fill in a few of the specific details here for me, but this is the oldest 
Masonic charge that we can find documented. So if we go back to prior to the 1700s, to an early Masonic text, we find the Cook Manuscript. And within the Cook Manuscript are direct references not only to some of the philosophical aspects of Hermeticism, but more to the practical aspects of Hermeticism and the practical aspects of Freemasonry. So in the Cook Manuscript, it mentions nine articles. These are our original charges. And we can see these charges reflected in present-day ritual. So in the Cook Manuscript, we read, you will understand that there are seven liberal sciences by which all seven sciences and crafts in the world were first found, and in especially the science of geometry and all others which seven sciences are called thus. It goes on to say that these uh, sciences and crafts after a flood of many years, that there were two pillars that were found. And on these pillars were Pythagoras found one and Hermes the philosopher found the other. And of course, we're talking about Hermes Trismegistus here. And they taught forth the sciences from that day forward. So what it's saying in this very early manuscript is that not only should we find the seven liberal arts and sciences as one of the charges as, as a means to direct our study. But the greatest of all is geometry. And who is responsible for carrying these seven liberal arts and sciences, the greatest of which is geometry, is in fact Hermes. And paralleled that with Pythagoras, and you can see those two brazen pillars uh, represented there as well. So is there any verifiable fact or evidence I think this is the one manuscript that many people point back to as a jumping off point because of how direct and literal it is regarding the liberal arts and sciences, regarding, the, I guess, the precipice or the placement of geometry, and with the direct order, if you will, to Hermes that after the deluge is to carry this forward for all men to follow. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, so I would push back slightly. Well, I mean, obviously, that it mentioned that the Cook manuscript mentions Hermes is is very significant. But I would say you don't want to get confused between his, history and mythology. So it doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. prove that there's a historical link, but it it does show obviously that that stonemasons were to some degree interested in Hermeticism or what, or something tangentially related to Hermeticism for sure, or Hermes in some way. Uh, I personally wouldn't draw any. I wouldn't draw the conclusion that it goes back to ancient Greece from that, but it's definitely significant, and it is a text that gets overlooked or is un unknown by probably the vast majority of Freemasons, actually. And certainly it's yeah. one of the most significant texts, yeah. Yeah. Is there a place that you turn, and this, I'm just curious on, on your own approach, because we're asked to speculate as Freemasons, yeah. but within kind of academic research and publishing, mm -hmm. speculation doesn't carry much yeah. weight. I'm curious for your own process, where do you turn in, in cases like this, where a lot of the early manuscripts and writing either didn't exist, or they were oral traditions, or were wiped yeah. out and cast aside by other ruling bodies or other ruling philosophical institutes of the time? Yeah. That's right. It, it's difficult. You know, you need to obviously know something about the time that it was produced in, find mm -hmm. what other texts you can. And I would say a, approach with caution in general. 
Because I mean, mm -hmm. one of the problems with uh, researching Freemasonry is everybody has their pet theory. Mm -hmm. So the, what they will do is they will take the symbols of Freemasonry and say, ah, oh, well, you can see those symbols in, in this other tradition that I've found. And usually there's some kind of familial connection to that tradition or something. And yeah, sure, that's true. But you can also find them in dozens of other traditions as well, normally. So, But uh, I'm not knocking the idea that there's a hermetic connection. There may be, but whether it goes back to the Renaissance or to ancient Greece, I'd probably I'd say probably more likely to the Renaissance. Then you could trace mm -hmm. the ideas, you know, outside of stonemasonry or Freemasonry, sure. But mm -hmm. I, I think history is more of a winding path than a straight line. Yeah, but that doesn't make it that doesn't make it less interesting. Usually, it makes it more interesting. <laughs> yeah, in some cases, it's also non-linear. It may not even not always, connect yeah. sequentially. It may appear all at once in multiple locations or multiple uh, thinkers at the same time. Yeah, for sure. Or at different times, yeah. Yeah, so getting back to the issue. So what was the biggest challenge or what was the biggest maybe revelation of working on the issue? Yeah, I think I think we've touched upon it probably quite squarely in the sense that things we know in our craft and maybe even things that we hold near and dear to ourselves and our own framework of thinking is, I guess, how I'll put it, that when really pressed and really challenged to go back to the origins of that, it can be challenging. And you For have sure, to be yeah. careful on what where you're drawing truth. So if we relate this back to perhaps truth with a capital T and what that means to Freemasons, you know, what one's truth about Hermeticism and Freemasonry might very well be quite different than the next person. So when you take this uh, role as guest editor or editor-in-chief, as you have, you have to be really careful and thoughtful and mindful and with that responsibility of putting work out as if it is truth, you have to be very careful on on how you present the information, either as speculation or as a verifiable historic fact. So for me, that was probably the biggest challenge because I've always felt this way about Hermeticism as it relates to our craft mm -hmm. and yeah. our uh, teachings within craft and within ritual and within lodge. But when really pressed to go back and say, where does this stem from? And can you prove it out? Became really hard. It's almost easier to to write future forward, you know, what, what's the presence of Hermeticism and alchemy and astrology and the seven liberal arts of science moving forward? In a way, that would have been an easier assignment than mm -hmm. let's look backward at Hermeticism and Freemasonry. And if we're calling ourselves a Hermetic Mason, if you are like me and you feel that you are also a Hermetic Mason practicing in these three subject matters or these three domains, then where does that come from? And that was a really difficult exercise. We've heard on other podcasts, you always start, you should always start sooner, right? So that was, I think, another key takeaway is just getting started on the issue sooner. Yeah. I feel that writing this issue or I guess editing this issue and <laughs> as a precursor to actually creating a body of work is probably the, the better exercise or, or one that I look forward to if and when we do a a second issue on the topics. I feel like this is just yeah. getting your reps in, so to speak. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So 
what are the, some of the themes of hermeticism that people might recognize? I know there was there was one article on the Kabbalion, and the Kabbalion is not an ancient text, mm -hmm. it's a 20th century text. But in, in defense of the Kabbalion, I think it does capture a lot about ancient religion and ancient uh, the ancient way of looking at the world, actually, surprisingly, sir. Yeah, so the one of the early texts that we talked about in Hermeticism is the Tabula, and I'm going to mess up the last name here, but the Tabula Smaragdina, Tabula Smaragdina, affectionately known as the Emerald Tablet. And within the Emerald Tablet, we have this notion of as above, so below, so below, as above, which mm -hmm. in the Kabbalion is then translated or adopted further into this idea of correspondence, that what you see on the mm -hmm. macro corresponds to what you see in the micro. So correspondence, Kabbalion, as above, so below, Emerald Tablet being early Hermetic texts. Can I say right. that? Is that a, a yeah. good enough linear progression? Sure. So in Freemasonry, <laughs> if we talk about the above and the below, obviously there's the idea that God is the great architect, but obviously there is a symbolism in Freemasonry around the large, which is all to do with architecture, geometry, building, and so on. So we're yes. not reenacting, but we are kind of doing on, on the earth, at least ritually, what God appears to have done in creation, right? So we yeah. say we're working with the same, we're sort of working with the essence, as it were, which in this case is expressed through geometry. Exactly. Yeah, and so there's a great article by Brother Jamie Paul Lamb, who's written extensively on alchemy, hermeticism, myth, magic. Yeah. And his article speaks to this idea of correspondence and what you're mentioning here with architecture. And I would encourage people to go back and look at that article. But in this kind of breakdown of the seven principles of Hermeticism as they relate within the Kabbalion mm -hmm. and to our work as a Freemason, principle number two is this idea of correspondence. And the question for the listeners is how does or how might the microcosm be reflected in the macrocosm? And that's just a, a question to speculate. And I we go through and there, we actually list all seven principles, each with a mm -hmm. prompt for your own speculation. And these questions you could bring to Lodge if there's a Masonic educational component to your Lodge or even a good <laughs> dinner table as you're enjoying some green beans, some dinner table conversation. But yeah, I, I think within that theme, what one thing that strikes me about the macro and the micro in terms of the recent advancements in quantum theory and quantum entanglement, which is the recent Nobel Peace Prize, the whole advancement of quantum science right now is proving out principles such as correspondence, principles mm -hmm. such as polarity. And to me, that's really fascinating. So you asked earlier, mm -hmm. what's one of the kind of the aha moments for me? It, it's been this, or we talk about fifth dimension, right? The idea that my that everything is mind and everything is mental quantum yeah. the the leading edge of science right now is mm -hmm. proving out the fifth dimension and going against this like kind of material einstein view of the universe yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And so it's really fascinating that this ancient body of wisdom is now being proven in today's mm-hmm. modern sciences, or right. maybe not fully proven, but it, but at least starting to be acknowledged as a, a scientific probability. Yeah. And so yeah. I find that, I guess, very reassuring. How do you feel about that? So I have two completely contrary things to say about it. First of all, I have to say <laughs> okay. that I'm not in any way an expert on quantum physics, and I would never pretend to be, but or modern yeah. or contemporary science. But, but f- f- my understanding is that, yeah, that more and more physicists are looking at the idea that everything is actually information, which would relate very much back to the idea that everything is mind, in a sense, and would, if proven, would seem to validate this claim from more than 2,000 years ago. The thing that I would say that would be opposite to that is I don't think we should get too excited about what science says because science changes its mind a lot and what it says today it definitely will not say in a hundred years from now so i wouldn't i personally wouldn't pin my beliefs to science sure but, but sure it is interesting that the cutting edge of science in some respects is saying some things that appear to validate what was said way way yeah. more than two thousand years ago certainly yeah yeah that's true and i think therein lies a conundrum because we could equally say, or I've heard an equal argument about the ancient mystery schools and ancient wisdom, Mm -hmm. which is it's very limiting. It had a kind of a myopic view of the universe. And a lot of what is said or believed during that time period, the veracity of it, the truth of it, you should take with a grain of salt because the view of the world and the understanding of math and science was so limited at the time. And so why then would we put any validity or put any weight into this idea of take another principle from the from the Kabbalion that everything is in vibration, everything is in a state of motion. So it's a principle mm-hmm. of vibration. So if this was being said or alluded to in early hermetic texts and then repackaged and reframed in Kabbalion, we, we shouldn't give it much veracity because of the limited point of view that the original thinkers and the writers of those theories, what they had. And you're right. And now in today's understanding, that's also limited. And it might be limited by things like the market factor, right? And how other ruling power dynamics within our society and what we are privy to and the kind of access to information that we have now is also limited in a belief. So this quest for truth and, yeah, substantiating it, it's the conundrum. It's like what to believe, who to believe, when to believe, and what is this fact? And I I guess this is why I come back to, okay, is it innate? Is it something that you feel? Uh, Can you draw from a prior experience? Is it something that you've maybe um, carried with you for a lifetime? And if so, then it does, it deserves some level of, of light. You should put a little light on it. And maybe that's, at the end of the day, that's why I took on this topic is because I felt like I needed to put some light yeah. on this subject that I had carried for quite some time. Yeah. In regard to the idea of knowledge, so in the medieval period, there was the idea that there were 
two types of knowledge, at least. One of them was ratio and the oh, two, way, two ways of thinking, we should say ratio and intellectus. And ratio was the workhorse of the mind where you, you have a problem and you use rational thinking to, to figure it out. And mm. intellectus is basically a form of contemplation where you contemplate nature or you contemplate sunrise or whatever, and you, in a sense, are absorbing absorbing the truth in the sense that they would say everything is created by God or and, and as such contains the mind of God or the thoughts of God and you by contemplating it can perceive this kind of mystery that that is beyond the rational so that's my criticism of of hooking one sort of spiritual life or, or sort of inner convictions to science it's interesting but what happens when science changes yeah. Uh, yeah, and it, it's true that ancient people were very limited in, t in comparison uh, when it comes to physics today or mathematics today, medicine mm -hmm. today. But um, but certainly uh, they also possessed a certain wisdom and insight that the modern society doesn't really have. So and even if you think about ancient yeah. medicine. If you go back to the ancient Greeks, the idea was that the first medicine was to correct your diet. Whereas today, mm -hmm. the average four-year medical course has less than 25 hours of uh, nutrition taught in it. So medicine today is the idea that you will prescribe the correct pill, whereas medicine two and a half thousand years ago was the idea that you will correct your diet. And uh, I'm not saying that everything can be healed through correcting your diet, but certainly probably most diseases would evaporate overnight if everybody did that. <laughs> That's the kind of true. wisdom that we clearly do not have, right? When you look at epidemics of, of diabetes, for example. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I, I heard recently something similar. The, the phrase was, do not question the problem with your results. Instead, question the problems with your practice. Zen book I'm I'm reading and I'm paraphrasing here, but it's that idea that instead of trying to fix the outcome or fix this ailment, instead try to fix what's wrong with your practice, and look at the process, look at the habits, and if you have poor yeah. nutrition, then that's probably the better place to to look for a solution. Yeah. How how else do you see this idea of correspondence at play in your work? Yeah, I'm personally not as interested in correspondence. I think people think I'm actually a lot more interested in magic than I really am. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I've been studying it for 30 years, and if you ever get me drunk, maybe I'll spill the beans about my <laughs> misgotten okay. youth. But, yes. but um, it's interesting, but danger with magic, so I think that's what we're talking about really when we talk about correspondences, is that although it seems like a very expansive worldview, after a while it becomes a very enclosed worldview. So you don't find many writers on magic today that are quoting philosophers or thinking about philosophers very seriously or, or fine art or anything outside of the world of magic. So it's a very insular mm -hmm and actually very inward-looking world in many respects. It is a kind of religion in itself, to be honest. But yeah, certainly, I don't know if there will be correspondences exactly, but you can see maybe parallels would be, a, or connections would be a, a better term that you can see in Freemasonry. 
So obviously the idea that we're supposed to make ourselves the perfect ashlar, so into this sort of geometric cube, and then God itself is the architect, right? So it's this mm -hmm. idea that we are in some way fitting ourselves into his plan. And obviously geometry may be literal in some sense, but it's also metaphorical. So if you think about, let's say, connections again, and this is an example I often give, when you look at a a gentleman's suit. It's actually designed to be worn by an upstanding or upright standing man. It's literally with his arms by his sides and the sleeves are cut in such a way that they are slightly curved to fit the arms which are slightly curved when they relax at the sides. And so what's the big deal about up, upright? On the one hand, if you look up the dictionary definition, you have upright vertical, which is geometry, upright, meaning someone who's morally upright, someone who's circumspect and trustworthy. So you have geometry, mm -hmm. morality, and then you have the actual physical body, the feeling of standing upright. Because everybody knows how it feels to stand and have a good posture as opposed to being you know, slouching or something like that. When we think about the upright man, we don't think of him as slouching with his feet up. We think of him as being upright and having and all of these things are interconnected in a way. Geometry and Freemasonry, you know, you could say it's geometry of the body with posture, but then also that feeling of embodying a sort of inner nobility or poise or confidence or whatever it is. And then the idea of upright as being connected to morality as well. So in a sense, mm -hmm. there are these different layers and different connections between things that aren't necessarily obvious, even in something mundane like a suit, but certainly within Freemasonry, that there are all these connections. If you go back to Plato, of course, Plato describes the creator as a craftsman who, who creates existence out of these geometric building blocks which relate to the four elements, pyramid, the fire being a pyramid and being a cube and that's water and air, but I forget what they are. But that's a very Masonic thing as well. So you can also see a, a very direct parallel to Freemasonry there as well. That's true. And I think that's one of the aspects of correspondence as it relates to the individual and this idea of magic, right? Is that the individual... Yeah is very much like the great architect. So as above, so below, Yeah, we are yeah. our own God, right? And therefore yeah. we are capable of our own creation or destruction. Yeah. And in that way, we use magic for either purpose. I, yeah. Uh, well, and, and there's many la layers and levels mm -hmm. to that, as you described really nicely in, in your example with the yeah. suit. And how that kind of affects the multiple modalities of the magic yeah. that we do cast. Yeah. So since you've mentioned magic a couple of times, maybe I'll just say that in in magic, or at least in modern magic anyway, of 19th century and onwards, the idea is that, let's say, you want to attract love, for example, then you would, mm -hmm. so love is ruled by the planet Venus. So you would, you would make, an, you would burn an incense that's, Venusian, and um, you would wear the color of Venus, which in the, in Western magic tends to be green. And you would do other Venusian things. You maybe maybe pray to a, a goddess of love, Venus, for, for example, the goddess of love, or something like that. And you would 
immerse mm -hmm. yourself in all of these sort of sights and sounds and feelings that would invoke this attitude or this force that you're trying to attract. So that, that is the idea. But sure, although I wouldn't say that the Masonic ritual is magic, sure, there is this idea. Obviously, there is the idea that if that you are immersing yourself in a world of metaphysical geometry, right, with geometry as a kind of symbolism of higher ideals, and this obviously relates back to the creator himself, who is perceived as the great architect. So there is something arguably similar there. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah and it, it touches on all kinds of alchemical references as well. You, you mentioned a couple there, but if we were to relate it back to Hermeticism, we find, you know, within the Emerald Tablet, direct instructions on how to first draw a point and then a circle and then a square and then the triangle, right? These are steps that we're told to follow, but they're very like encrypted. And I know that there's been a lot of speculation on what it means exactly, this process of creation. But the Emerald Tablet says this is exactly the way to act as if you were the great architect, right? To recreate any level of, or manifest at any level is to follow these steps. How do you read that set of instructions in terms of first finding a point and then inscribing the point and then inscribing that in a square and then, of course, a triangle, which goes around all of it? How do you read that? Yeah, I'm, I think I'm less familiar with that than you, so you would need to tell me. There is no clear directive on this, right? There's no clear truth that we can point to, but some of the similarities that I have seen in that instruction, it's alchemical instruction to begin with. And we know that Hermes thrice great <laughs> Trismegistus was a master in alchemy and that this set of instructions appears on the Tabula Smaragdina. So it's hermetic, alchemical, magical, and relates to this idea of manifesting or creating as above, so below. And I'm not going to try to go into each of these steps, but the first step, which is the point within the circle, that is the very first thing you do, is to start with a point, and then from that, draw your circle. And we know in our lectures, in, in, in our ritual, that everything emanates out from the point, right? So the point becomes a line, the line becomes mm -hmm. a shape, the shape becomes an edifice. And this goes back to what you're describing about these building blocks of building the temple. And so whether it's creating a physical shape and form and reality, or if it's just the point within ourself, like love, like you described, or harnessing this element of Venus and doing magic and alchemy within ourself, it starts with that point within our own circle and emanates out from there. So I think whether it's looking at geometry as it relates to constructing a temple, let's say a lodge room or Solomon's temple, or whether it's your temple, and how the mind is like a, a, a microcosm of a temple as well. If you're working on your personal temple, it also starts with analyzing or identifying that point and having it emanate outward. 
So I, I think the instruction is basically saying whether you want to manifest and create, regardless of what plane of existence you're dealing with, whether it's the microcosm or the macrocosm, you begin with that point of creation, the moment of singularity, like the Big Bang. Imagine a little Big Bang inside of all of us. And from there, it emanates outward. And of course, the circle, I personally believe it's intended to describe a sphere, a three-dimensional sphere, not a flat, two-plane circle. But from that emanates outward, and it has to be contained. Um, so regardless of what plane you're trying to create, and manifest, it begins with this set of instructions, which is to find a point of origin and have creation expand from there. Okay, we've mentioned magic a couple of times, so maybe the last question should be, you know, we, we see a lot of other orders that have come out of Freemasonry or have been founded mm -hmm. by Freemasons, such as the Hermetic Order of Martinists, which is only open to uh, Freemasons. Uh, in Great Britain and I guess some related jurisdictions. And uh, more famously, of course, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. So what is the relationship of these orders to Freemasonry and why, are, why were Freemasons founding them? Yeah, I'm going to get in trouble for going out on, on this one, only because I'm not a member of either. So I think it's difficult. Oh, me neither. You're okay. It's a complicated... Uh, question and a complicated answer because a we've already established there isn't much literature which connects it based on historic facts and figures and b because as a member unlike freemasonry where i relate my experience of the ritual back to hermetic philosophy and hermetic ideals in these these two examples it's difficult for me to do so but let me come at the question in this way I think for many Freemasons, including myself, I'll speak from experience, we go through this process, this initiatic process of trying to transmute ourselves, trying to do alchemy on ourselves, right? We you ask any Mason, <laughs> why did you come to Freemason? To become a better version of myself. Okay, we hear this a lot. That's why I came, I knocked on the door and said, hey, I'm seeking light, I'm seeking truth, I'm seeking the tools, the craft, the process, the ways, the brethren, the community in order to make myself better than I am today. And then we get to the third degree and everyone shakes our hand, we take a photo, the photo ends up on Instagram. And what are we left with? We're left with this road ahead, which is probably more unclear <laughs> at that point than it was when we first entered. So I think these yeah. orders were established to continue to uh, practice magic and alchemy in a way that maybe nurtured and, and fed that spirit of knowledge that um, mm -hmm. is in all of us as we go through these degrees. I think that although Freemasonry provides the keys, the tools, the insights to pursue esoteric knowledge, it's limited in the sense that it's kind of like a carry your own bag organization. Like you, you have to really carry your drive forward sure. for knowledge on your own, right? It's, yeah. You don't quite know where to turn. Yeah. A lot of lodges are more social than they are philosophical in nature. So that I think that makes it equally sure. difficult. 
So I think all of us, the, the simple final one sentence answer here is, I think for Freemasons who go through this initiatic experience, who are left wanting more, founded these organizations because they wanted to continue to pursue this esoteric knowledge and transmutation of their self. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? What's the critique on the on that? Or maybe give us more practical, factual info on the two orders themselves and, and why Hermeticism. Yeah. Certainly the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was founded by Freemasons, mostly by William Wynne Westcott and S.L. McGregor Mathers. Uh, who were also um, very high up in the Societas Rosicrociana in Anglia as well, which is a, essentially a Rosicrucian society for Freemasons in England. And they have, there are other jurisdictions in the USA, Canada, and elsewhere, of course. But yeah, mm -hmm. so I think with that organization, they wanted to take the, the sort of information that they were coming across in the Societas Rosicruciana and make it practical. So they didn't just want to learn about Kabbalah. They wanted to start mm -hmm. applying Kabbalistic ideas in rituals and trying to mm -hmm. ascend this tree of life or whatever it was and this yeah. sort of thing. So yeah, I think it was to essentially be more practical in that, in that world. And yeah. yeah, I'm not sure about the Hermetic Order of Martinists because I know less about them, but it is a Martinist order. So it goes... You know, the philosophy would go back to uh, uh, Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin in, in France, which is a kind of Christian esotericism or Christian mysticism. And I would imagine from the name of the order that they are also drawing on hermetic themes as well. Again, yeah. it's probably to dive deeper into the world of uh, hermeticism and obscure Christian esotericism. Yeah, so that's helpful. Thank you for sharing that. In the research, as, as I was trying to answer that question and collect what I could on both these orders, the Rosicrucian symbol is this unfolding rose petal, yeah. right? This um, right. very lotus flower-esque. And the way I read that, and again, we can kind of spot check this against what's published, and if there are any members of the Rosicrucian orders, they can verify this, but that is in many ways, in a number of different philosophical frameworks, the expanding consciousness. So as we go through this Kabbalistic tree of life and we move, and in the Corpus Hermeticum, it talks about the uh, progression from the physical plane or the material plane up to Keter or this divine mm -hmm. plane of existence. Yeah. And so as, as we transcend these levels, as we emanate from the material up to the level of deity or the divine, we're this unfolding flower. And so I think even at the heart of the symbol, you see this pursuit, which is the same pursuit. And I, I touch upon this in the article in the issue, too, is the pursuit of every Freemason is to find union with deity, right, is to to connect further with yeah. with the great architect. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think you, um, you, you touch a chord there where you describe their history because of this practical way of finding a place to, to pursue this somewhat impractical pursuit of achieving union with deity. How do you do this? You do this perhaps in more practical ways through these orders 
Kabbalistic orders also give you some of the tools and the know-how, and, and we see some of these processes at play in, in lodge and in ritual, but they're very hermetic in nature, this pursuit of, of union with deity. Yeah. The other thing that might be noteworthy here for uh, for those listening is that the Rosicrucian spiritual path sometimes incorporates this thrice great kind of, you know, the holy triad of studies or disciplines or practices. So the Rosicrucian spiritual path sometimes incorporates this thrice great system of philosophy, Kabbalah, and divine magic. And so we, I'm glad we we touched upon the Kabbalistic aspect as well as the magical component that we were discussing earlier. Right. Well, thank you, brother. This has been a change from the usual order of events. Yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing more from you. Do you want to give us a quick shout out or plug for the year ahead for Fraternal Review since we have you here? Yeah, people should subscribe because it's going to be a lot of interesting things. And I think we're going to do an interview about it next month. Talk about the, we are. the upcoming year. But there's going to be a, a lot of different things. There will be an, an issue on the great architects. There's going to be a few issues related more to practical things in Freemasonry. I'm doing one on Freemasonry and ritual magic. So uh, there'll be quite a range of different and hopefully stimulating topics. I think you couldn't find that range elsewhere. But yeah, subscribe. Indeed. Yeah. Thank you again for the time today. And yeah, look forward to chatting with you again next on our next uh, episode. Yeah, next episode. Yeah, thank you. Fraternal Review has been published for over six decades, and each issue is dedicated to a specific topic, such as Masonic symbols, lore, and history. If you enjoyed this episode of Fraternal Review's podcast, please subscribe, support, or visit our website for more information. You can become a digital, print, or digital and print subscriber of the Fraternal Review magazine at theresearchlodge.com.